Amen. Amen. How true that is. How we need to hear that, how we need to express that. There are some researchers and authors who have suggested that we might be living, excuse me, in an evangelical recession. You've heard about an economic recession, but they're suggesting that maybe we are living in a time of an evangelical recession in our country. Now, when I say evangelical, and I think when most people mean it, say evangelical, they mean the Christians who are deeply committed to the scriptures, who, who take uh, this book very seriously, who understand that in order to have a relationship with God, you need a, a new birth experience through Jesus Christ. And and who are passionate about sharing the good news of salvation with others. Uh, generally, that's what we mean when we say evangelicals, even though in, in today's environment, sometimes it has taken some political tones that, that are not meant to be implied here. But there are about 73.7% of Americans that identify themselves as Christians. Uh, that may mean that they're Catholic or Protestant or Evangelical or something else, uh, but that's a high percentage. Now, we know that not everybody who claims to be a Christian is, is actually a Christian, but, but that is it. But when, when, when we talk about a recession, uh, they're talking about the fact that U.S. Catholics, the U.S. Catholic Church today is experiencing an 11% decline in, in churches, in the number of churches, that mainline Protestants, that means Presbyterians, Methodists, uh, Episcopalians, and Lutherans, are declining at the rate of 15 to 40% in membership. And that evangelicals in the U.S. are not the high percentage that sometimes uh, we've thought they were. Some people have said that as many as 40% uh, of the U.S. population are evangelical. There are some who say, no, it's not really that big. It could be as small as 10%. And so uh, there's a concern. Here's another way of thinking about this reality. Every year in the U.S., Four to 5,000 churches are closing their doors. Every year in our country, four to 5,000 churches are saying, we cannot go on anymore, we're closing the doors. That means that last week there were 82 churches that had church services that today are not having church services. That's a rate of 82 churches per week. That's huge. And there's this growing hatred toward uh, Christians, toward evangelicals. Uh, sometimes it has to do with political things and, and the position that evangelicals take about LGBTQ issues or abortion or other issues. Uh, there's a segment of evangelicals that identifies with right-wing politics and, and the world doesn't always understand these differences and, and then uh, they begin to dislike and to hate Add to that the fact that today we are told that the older generations in church, that the builders and the boomers, give about four to five times more than the younger generations, than, uh, than the generations of people of ages 22 through 45. So here's what it means. that Every time a senior adult, one of the builders or, or, or boomers, passes into the Lord's presence... It takes about four other 
people to replace their giving in the church. So you can see how the church around the United States is struggling financially. And it's not an ethnic thing. It's not a language thing. It is a generational thing. The older generations were very generous with their money. And now we're facing newer generations who are needing to figure that out. And then we hear that 70% of millennials have left the church. That means 70% of millennials who grew up in church were in our children's classes, in our youth activities. When they became 20 years old, they stopped going to church. And then we have all these ingredients that say, are we really in a recession? Well, there are many implications to this decline in attendance and membership and giving of churches, but for purposes of our message today, I just want to mention three things that I think are relevant to us. The first one is that a growing and a vibrant church today in the U.S. goes against the current. That to be a growing and vibrant church is not a normal, natural thing. It, it goes against the current of what's happening in our country. We need to know that. Secondly, is that churches that decide to keep the status quo will eventually become one of those statistics. That churches that decide that they're going to stay the way they are and that they're going to do things the way they've always done them are eventually going to be in decline. And then the third thing that I want to mention is that as God's people, as God's church, we are surrounded by opposing forces. That... that as you and I are committed to serve God, to be disciple makers for the glory of God among the nations, that as we serve God, we need to know that not everyone around us wants us to succeed. That, that as we move forward as a church and we want to be a growing, vibrant, missional, disciple-making, multiplying church, that not everybody out there is our cheerleader. We just need to know that. And that brings me to today's message. We are in a series in the book of Nehemiah called Rebuilding. And Nehemiah's mission has been to rebuild Jerusalem. Our mission as God's people is to build the kingdom of God. Both missions are hugely important. Both missions are difficult. Both missions face opposition. And that's the title of the message today, External Opposition. Just like the church today is surrounded by opposing forces, Nehemiah and the people of God faced opposition from forces around them. So let's go to our text in Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. We've been going chapter by chapter in our series, and now we get to chapter 4, verse 1. And it reads like this. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. 
turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. You can sense the angst that Nehemiah is feeling as his opposing voices, his outsiders are criticizing his project. So as we follow this story, I, I want to see what we can learn from the story that we can apply to ourselves as a church, as the people of God. And the first thing that I want to propose to you is that progress gives way to opposition. Nehemiah had successfully rallied the Jews in Jerusalem. They had been there for a long time. They had been living among the rubble and the ruins. They had been discouraged and felt forsaken. And Nehemiah was used by God to cast vision, the vision of a restored Jerusalem and the people got the vision and they got behind the vision and they got excited. And it says in our passage that the people were working with all their heart. They, they put their 100% into this project because they were uh, thinking maybe, maybe we could see the Jerusalem the way it used to be. Maybe we could, we could have this city actually look like a decent city where, where it's evident that God is our God and, and they were happy and they were excited. There were men and women that were working. We read that in Nehemiah 3. There were the religious people and the common people. There were the skilled artists artisans and the labor. There were uh, older people and younger people. They were all moving around doing the work of rebuilding the wall. There was hope in the air. There was excitement in the air for what, what could be. Yet before that day arrived, there were some who are not happy. In fact, they are angry at what they see, at the progress that is taking place. You know, there are people in the world who cannot stand to see somebody else happy. You know that there are people in the world that are so bitter that they cannot stand it when somebody else has joy. You know, there are people in the world who are so insecure that when somebody has success, they, they want to trip them up. Sambalat was that person for Nehemiah, the governor of Samaria. Tobiah, the leader of the Ammonites, was that hater for Nehemiah. And so the story of Nehemiah reminds us that, that progress gives way to opposition. Sambalad and Tobiah engaged in, in a verbal attack. They question Nehemiah's motives. They question their success. They question the way they were going about it. They cast doubt. They, they made fun of them. That's the specialty of haters. They name call those feeble Jews. They put you, they label you and put you in a box. They, they stereotype. They question our commitment to God. They question our integrity. They say things like, you'll never be successful. You're a failure. You're trying to do something that's impossible. Nobody else is trying to do that. Why don't you just give up right now? Why are you wasting your time? You're doing it all wrong. Don't you know that there are people out there talking about you? 
Don't you know that there are people who, who are not happy with what you're doing? There's voices that criticize, that fault find, that discourage, come from the enemy. Now there is a place for constructive criticism, don't get me wrong. But constructive criticism is usually done in love, it is done to build up, and is usually done in private. But when there's this shaming and there's this trash talking in public that is meant to discourage, to distract, and to divide, it comes from the enemy. And, and, and when you look at Nehemiah, it, it, it's not that it bothers him. I don't think Nehemiah is insecure. He knows what he was called to do. He knows what his gifting is. He knows what his ability is. Nehemiah is not bothered because he has doubts about himself. He is bothered because uh, Sambalat and Tobiah have insulted the people of God. The workers who were working with all their heart in the rebuilding project. And so his prayer expresses his righteous anger. Did you pick up his prayer? It's an interesting prayer. He tells God, turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Boy, that's, that's a heavy prayer to be praying for your enemies. Have you ever felt like praying that way for, your, for the haters in your life? You don't have to raise your hand. Have you ever felt like praying, God, why don't you slap them silly a thousand times? Why don't you let all their teeth fall out except for one and leave that one dangling? Why don't you fill their body with warts and, and, and grow a hair in each of the warts? You never pray like that? God, give them perpetual bad breath and let them be filled with mosquito bites. Lord, you can do above and beyond what we can ask or imagine, so do your thing. You know, you're not supposed to pray like that, but sometimes you feel like it, don't you? Sometimes people, when they discourage us, when they offend us, when they insult us, it can be frustrating. It breaks our heart. It, it awakens our fear and our disgust. And, and Jesus reminds us, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Man, that's tough, isn't it? That's tough. But, but that's the higher road. That's what sets us apart as children of God is, is to, to love our enemies and to pray for those that persecute us. But in the midst of that, we remember that progress gives way to opposition. If you're a leader, you will face opposition. If you are committed to God's work and you have stepped up in obedience, you will face opposition. If you're a follower of Jesus and you say, I will follow you wherever you go, you will face opposition. Years ago, I, I ran across this far side cartoon where, where there are two deer and one of them tells the other, uh, bummer of a birthmark cow, right? And, and, uh, and I think about the fact that when, when we step up for leadership, you get a target on your back. When you step up to follow Jesus, 
you're going to have a target on your back. Just own that. Just know that that's, that's the reality. There's a pastor that, that tweeted this week, if you're not ready to face opposition for your obedience to God, then you're not ready to be used by God. If you're not ready to face opposition for your obedience to God, then you're not ready to be used by God. And I agree. Now, but, but remember, remember as you're trying to sort out the voices, how do you know that the voices that you hear are constructive criticism or they're the voice of the enemy? This is how you know. If it's the voice of the enemy, it is meant to destroy to distract and to divide. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So you can know that. When, when, when that's the intent, when that's the effect, then it comes from the enemy. But you can also know this, the devil is a liar. The devil is a liar. Two, prayer gives way to vision. The enemy can be persistent. When, when, when the opposition cannot trip us up one way, it will try to do it another way. Think about it. When, when Satan uh, tempted Jesus in, in the wilderness, did, Jesus, did Satan tempt him one and then leave once? No. Did he tempt him twice? And he said, okay, he, he didn't trip up the first time. Let me try a second time. Not only did he tempt him twice, he tempted him three times. The enemy doesn't leave easily. When Nehemiah's enemies realized that the trash talk didn't work, they, they upped their game. They, they changed their tactic. Look at verses 7 through 14 with me. It says, but when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is given out and there is much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall, at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. The story begins with Sambalat and Tobiah being loud mouths. But as they see that Nehemiah is committed, that they're staying on task, that they're focusing on their mission, they become angry and they, they rally some opposition. The Samaritans were, were led by, by Sambalat. The Ammonites were read, led uh, by Tobiah. And then there were the Arabs and the people of Ashdod, which is the Philistines. And you can see in a map that as the people were trying to rebuild Jerusalem, there was opposition coming from the north and from the east and from the west and from the south. 
These people that were working with all their heart, these people that have been singing songs, that were rejoicing in the future that God had for them now, as they show up to rebuild the wall, they see armies all around them. There's hatred in their eyes. There's an intent to kill them. Not, not only now are they criticized, not only are they making fun of them, but their lives are in danger. And you know, when opposition like that surrounds you, it eventually affects you, doesn't it? When, when, when the opposition gets stronger, when, they, when it ups its game, it begins to get in your head. And, and you've heard the voice of God and, and you've heard the voice of godly people speaking into your life. And there are all these positive, constructive, godly voices in your life, but there's this one voice that comes from the enemy and it seems to get louder and louder and louder in your head. The Jews that lived even around Jerusalem said 10 times over, all of a sudden everything Nehemiah had said, all of a sudden everything God had said seemed to be on mute and the only thing they heard was the negativity. So what do you do? What do you do when opposition surrounds you? What do you do when, when fear grabs you by the throat? What do you do when your heart is intimidated by the enemy's minions? I'll tell you what Nehemiah did. He prayed. That's, that was his MO. When, when, he, when he was in the citadel of Susa being the cupbearer to the king of Persia and he heard what was going on back, back in Jerusalem, what did he do? He prayed. He prayed and he fasted. When he had to face the king to ask him permission to go back and rebuild, he prayed. When Sambalat and Tobiah started criticizing him, fault-finding his work, he prayed. It wasn't a very nice prayer, but he prayed. I encourage you that not all your prayers have to be perfect. God can handle them. And now, when they're armed and they want to kill them, Nehemiah prays. He prayed and posted a guard Prayer was always first for Nehemiah. He prayed before the mission. He prayed during the mission. He prayed after the mission. You see, prayer gives way to vision. Fear blurs your vision. Prayer gives you clarity. Fear makes your enemies look bigger than they really are. But prayer puts your enemies in perspective to the size of your God. Fear keeps us looking around, but prayer lifts up our eyes to look up at our God. That's what happened when Nehemiah prayed. He says it in verse 14. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Prayer reminds us that God is bigger than our opposition. Prayer reminds us that God is more powerful than our enemies. All of your enemies, all of your haters, all of the voices in your head don't compare to the size of our God. Prayer calls us to be in awe of our God instead of being in fear of our enemies. When we pray, we are reminded that the God that we're praying to is the God that was with little shepherd boy David when he faced the giant Goliath. 
And it was God who allowed him to slay that giant and give him victory that day. That's our God. The God that we pray to is the same God that was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And he allowed them to be delivered. Not even a single hair of their head was burned. That's our God. The God that we pray to is, is the God that raised Jesus from the dead when he was in a cold tomb, when, when his body was dead and, and slain and, and, and had bled and, and was pierced. And it looked like defeat. It was God that raised him up from the dead. And today he is living and he's exalted above all thrones, above all gods and above all things. That's our God. Prayer gives way to vision. Prayer lets you know how great God is. Serving God means engaging in a spiritual battle, folks. Doing God's work requires us to be spiritual warriors. When we're on mission with God, we need to be prepared for battle against the enemy of God. Simple as that. You're doing God's work, then be prepared to face God's enemy because he doesn't want God's work to advance. So let us pray and pray again and keep praying. Nehemiah posted a guard around the city. We need to post a spiritual guard around our church. Our guard is spiritual. We need spiritual gear. We need spiritual weapons. Peter reminded the church in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and, sober, and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's out there, folks. Don't be afraid of him, but be aware he's there. Like a roaring lion. But he's not Mufasa. He's more like Scar. And we have Aslan on our side. Calvary, if we're going to pursue God's vision, we need an army of prayer warriors. Calvary, if we're, if we're going to succeed in God's purpose, we need to post a guard of prayer warriors around our spiritual city. Calvary, if we don't want to be a statistic of decline, then we need to fall on our knees and seek the face of God because from him comes the power for victory. Prayer gives way to vision. And then third and final, persistence gives way to success. Prayer is absolutely necessary, but prayer is not an excuse for inactivity. Our work gets the job done, but prayer provides the power for the work. Both are necessary, and Nehemiah knew that. And that's why he organized the people to do both, not just either or. Let's finish the chapter, verse 15. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, 
and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued to work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. What an interesting strategy for a building project. Nehemiah was committed to the success of the mission and there was rebuilding to be done and there was a battle to be fought. He didn't have the luxury of choosing one or the other. Nehemiah couldn't say, well, look, let's just forget about rebuilding and let's just build the the meanest, fastest, fiercest army and let's teach these people a lesson. He didn't have the opportunity to specialize in military strategy. And neither could he say, well, look, we, we're here to rebuild. Will you just, let's just stay on our lane. We're just going to be builders and, and the enemies. Let's just God take care of them. He couldn't do that. He had to do both. He had to rebuild and he had to defend. And so he organizes the people. Half of the men are geared up for battle and the other half are building. And then the people that are carrying the, the materials to the builders, they, they have materials in one hand and a sword on the other. What? It looks like the hood, I think, you know. You got to work with, with your weapon on. And, and then the people that were actually on the wall, they were wearing, they had their sword on them, ready for battle, building and fighting, building and defending. And then he said, and by the way, we'll work during the day and at night we'll stay dressed in our military gear just in case. You're going to be on security call 24-7. And that's how he organized them. Imagine this construction site with, with building materials and, and workers and warriors and weapons all around. What, what an incredible sight that must have been. It's not the fastest way to build a wall, by the way. It's not the most efficient way to get a construction project done, but it is the most effective way to build when you're facing opposition. It's kind of like building a freeway while cars are still traveling on it and staying stuck in traffic right in front of the plaza mall for a while. It's not the fastest way. But sometimes that's what you have to do. I was talking to a pastor in North Texas whose church is similar to our church. And we were talking about the things that God is doing in each, other, uh, each other's churches and the challenges that we're facing. And, and he said something that really caught my attention about the challenge that a church like his and a church like ours has. And, and I started to think about the kinds of churches that we have today in the U.S. And, and I thought, you know, there are some churches that have recently started as new churches and they have chosen a demographic. They've chosen to go out uh, for the young people and to be hip and to be high tech and, and, uh, 
and, and they grow fast and they multiply fast. They're, they're really swift. I, I call those speedboat churches and I'm thankful for them. We need a bunch of them. And then there are the kind of churches that say, no, we're just going to stay in the past. We, we're just going to keep on wishing that things were the way they were back in the 1950s. And, and those churches, I call them sinking ship churches because they're just going to close eventually. And then there are churches like ours. Churches like ours are, are churches that, that value the legacy of the people that came before us. Churches like ours are churches that say we, we value senior adults as much as we want to reach students. We, we, we want to be a church that, that builds on the legacy of the past while being relevant to our current challenges. We want to be a church that is welcoming. We're not going to target a demographic. It's not senior adults or students. It's not classic or contemporary. It's not English or Spanish. It's, we're going to do both. It's not either or, but, but we're going to move forward. And that's like a cruise ship church. A cruise ship church has a lot of things going on, but it moves slow. It just moves slow. You just need to own that. It's not the fastest way, but, but it is the most inclusive way as we reach the world. In many ways, we can relate to Nehemiah's project. We don't have, well, we do have the option. We could choose to be a church that just focuses on, on being relevant and forget the people uh, from legacy. Or we could be a church that just gets stuck in the past, but, but we're, we're choosing not to. We, can, we can't stay in the past and be effective in the future. Let me change analogies on you. It's like building a plane while it's flying. We don't have the luxury of, of landing the plane and saying, you know, we're going to stop everything because we're going to uh, build a 21st century plane from scratch. We can't do that because there's things that have to be done every week. There's worship services and classes and ministries and people that have to be reached. And we can't land the plane. We have to fly it. But, but we also realize you can't fly a 20th century plane into the 21st century. And so we build as we fly. It's not easy. It's a difficult task. That's what it was for the people of Nehemiah's day. They had to build a wall with few resources and they had to fight opposition on every front. And you know what their success consisted of? Their success consisted of persisting, of staying on task, of staying on mission. And you know how they were able to do that? Because God reminded them of something that's very, very important. In verse 20, Nehemiah said this to the people, our God will fight for us. Can you say that with me? Our God will fight for us. You see, the people could be on guard and build because they knew that God would fight for them. The people could, could be ready to defend the city and rebuild the city at the same time because they knew that God would ensure their success. It was God's job to give them success. It was their job to be faithful to the task. And that's what our call is. God will fight for us. This is not our church. It doesn't belong to anybody but Jesus. It's his church. 
and he will make sure it succeeds. The Bible says that not even the gates of hell shall prevail against it. When his people are faithful in praying and working, praying and working, praying and working, both and, not either or. We keep on keeping on. As a popular character recently said, Anna, just do the next right thing. Just stay on it. Persistence gives way to success. Let's face our opposition by praying and working as if God fought for us because he does. He fights for us. Our success depends on God. Our role is to be faithful in prayer and obedience. Pray and work, work and pray, pray and work, work and pray, pray and work. Stay on it, stay on it, stay on it. God will make sure that he gets the glory. God will make sure that his purposes are accomplished. God will make sure that we are successful at whatever he's asked us to do. I want to close by telling you the story of Melissa Odens. Melissa had a very difficult adolescence. He discovered, she discovered um, in a fight with one of her siblings that she was adopted. You know how kids are and they got in a fight and, and her sibling said to her, at least when I was born, my parents wanted me. And she was heartbroken. She couldn't believe what she was hearing. So she went to her parents and she wanted to know her story. And, and she, she discovered at a very tender age that not only has she been adopted, but her biological mother had aborted her. And it was by the grace of God that a nurse in that hospital in Iowa found the little body of a baby that was meant to be aborted in a place where he would be disposed of. And she heard the whimpering and the crying and picked up that baby and took that baby to receive medical care. And the baby survived, a baby that was meant to be killed, had life. And when she heard her story, she struggled as a teenager to figure out what all this meant. But, but she overcame that by faith in God and, and she has a word to say to Christians. And I want you to hear that word from her own lips. Watch this video. Yeah, if God can perform miracle after miracle that he has in my life, right? Sparing me from an abortion, bringing my adoptive parents into my life, you know, saving me from pain and suffering when I found out the truth about surviving that abortion, landing in the city where my birth father was living, you know, at the same time that I was giving birth at the same hospital where my life was supposed to end, moving to the city where my birth mother has been for over 30 years, bringing her now into my life. I mean, the list could go on and on if God can perform all of those miracles in my life. There's nothing that he can't do in someone else's. You know, I think the biggest piece is that we have to be willing to cooperate with him and say yes. I think a lot of times we know God is calling us forward to do something or try to mend a relationship. And there is this part of people that struggle and kind of go, I don't want to do that, right? Or, yeah, maybe if they apologize to me first 
And we set these conditions and God is saying, now I'm talking to you. You know, what do you need to do to make a difference? And so I look back on my life and I see all of those times that God has said, don't worry about anybody else. You need to worry about what I'm calling you to do. Hey guys, thank you so much for watching. Don't worry about anybody else. You need to worry about what I'm calling you to do. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But he has come to give us life, and life abundant. And he calls us not to be discouraged by the opposition around us, by the enemy who tries to steal everything from us, but to be faithful to what he's called us to do today. What has he called you to do? Would you stand with me? Would you bow your head and, and think about what it is that, that you need to do as a response to God's word? As you bow your head and you close your eyes, you, you may be realizing right now that the thing that you need most in your life is to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The one thing that, that you don't have today is the assurance that, that you're a child of God, that your sins are forgiven, and that he has made you a new person and giving you eternal life. And if you don't have that, that's a commitment that you can make. He provides it free for you. He went to the cross of Calvary to die for your sins. And then he rose from the dead to give you new life. It's a gift that he wants to give you. You can't buy it, you can't earn it, but you do have to receive it by faith. And maybe today you say, Lord, I want that gift. I want new life. I want to be your child. I want the power that comes from you to face every opposition in my life. And I want to serve you. Maybe that's a prayer you need to pray. Maybe there's something else God is calling you to do. What is it? What commitment do you need to make right now? To trust him? To commit to a life of prayer? to step up to leadership, to be a disciple maker, to do God's work, to release something that's been holding you back, to follow the Lord and believers baptism, whatever it is that he's calling you to do, say yes right now. Trust him, receive from him. As we sing, you're welcome to come to the front, get on your knees and pray, or you can pray where you are. Whatever the Spirit leads you to do, you do with confidence.